this word. Let's uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer for confession. Use of 1 John 1, 9, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to fellowship together around the teaching of your word. May our souls be fed and nourished this evening as we feed on your word, that we might grow spiritually with the ultimate goal of glorifying you in everything we think and everything we do. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 reads, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. James chapter 2 verse 24 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I know that caught everybody by surprise, so I'm going to hit you with that one more time. Pay attention. Romans 4 verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. James 2.24 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Therein lies what many perceive to be a major contradiction in the Bible. Many say that James is contradicting Paul. Paul says that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. James says, on the contrary, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. What does that mean? Well, that is a question we will be answering over the next month or so as we get into this chapter of James that is so crucial to understanding so many things about the unique spiritual life that God has provided for us in this church age and the significance and the importance of Christian growth and spiritual growth. As we get into this chapter tonight, I want to stop and sort of take a bird's eye view. Sometimes we get so caught up in the details of specific doctrines and exegetical particulars that we lose sight of where we're going. And it's so important to understand James and this chapter that we have to look at it from the bird's eye view and we'll constantly come out, go up to the satellite, look at the overview, come back down and look at the particulars and zoom in and out of the chapter to make sure we do not lose the context. Because I think this is one of the reasons this passage is so badly mis- misinterpreted and in many places uh, mistranslated. So I want to give seven different observations, seven points of observations that we need to take into account if we are going to correctly interpret this chapter. First of all, point number one, we need to remind ourselves of the purpose of the epistle. This is found back in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where we have the first mandate. The first mandate is a plural mandate. I've emphasized this before and we'll do it again, that the imperative mood is used with a second person plural 
y'all, and with a third person plural. Or, excuse me, third person singular, let each of you. Now, we're going to look at the specifics of that as we get into our passage a little later. But this is the first plural, and it's a present active indicative, and these relate general principles for the spiritual life. These third person singular imperatives come along and give specific details for fulfilling the general mandates. Okay, we just have to keep that in mind. This is the first general mandate, and it is to count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know, and that's a a participle, an adverbial participle of cause, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, that is an important statement. If you don't understand the relationship of that statement to the rest of the epistle, you will screw up in the way you interpret this epistle. Because I think that this is the first thing out of James' pen after the salutation. And I think that the rest of this epistle is designed to teach us all the mandates and principles we need in order to have real joy, surpassing happiness and stability in the midst of testing. In other words, fulfilling the mandate. Count all joy when you encounter various trials, various tests, because you know a principle. And that principle is that the testing, and the word there is dokimion, looks like this in the Greek, dokimion, D-O-K-I-M-I-O-N, which has to do with evaluation. It is not a test to see what you don't know, but it is to evaluate that which is valuable in your spiritual life. So these, these are evaluation tests of your faith. Now this is another important word to understand. Pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. What is the meaning of pistis? Well, it has two meanings. There are three meanings mentioned in Arndt and Gingrich, the standard Greek lexicon for, uh, for, that is used by almost all scholars. The first has to do with faithfulness. That's not one we're concerned with. It doesn't relate to this passage. And I question that in many passages anyway. Primary use is an objective meaning. And that is, that or excuse me, is an active meaning. And it has to do with trusting. And this is the exercise of the faith rest drill. Where we have a conviction that something is true. What does faith mean? It means that you have a conviction of the veracity of something. You believe it to be true. You have this internal, intellectual conviction that it's true. Secondly, there is a passive sense. And this refers to what is believed. The content of faith. What is believed. And we use it that way even in English. We speak of someone's faith referring to the doctrine that they hold, whether what denomination they belong to, what uh, religious persuasion they are. We say someone is of the Catholic faith or a Presbyterian faith or Episcopal faith. And there we're using faith in the sense of doctrine. So that's a good way to translate it when it has its passive sense is just doctrine. And that's the way it should be translated here in verse 3. It's not testing whether or not we trust God because a test 
has to evaluate content. When you go through school, first you learn. You have lectures, workbook assignments. You learn some content, and then you have a test to evaluate how well you've absorbed that. The test evaluates the content. So the test is not to evaluate whether or not you will you are convinced of the veracity of God's Word. The test is to evaluate whether or not you have learned it and can apply it. So the focus here is on doctrine. Now this is crucial to understanding what happens when we get into chapter 2. So the purpose of the epistle is to help us understand how to have maximum joy, happiness, and stability in the midst of testing because we understand that the purpose of testing and adversity is to evaluate the doctrine that's in our soul, the doctrine that we have learned. Secondly, we have to understand the meaning of faith. The meaning of faith. We have seen that it has an objective, I mean an active and a passive sense. Furthermore, the word pistis is used 16 times in the epistle. Now, what's instructive is how that is spread out. It is used first right here in verse 3 of chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 1, because you know that the testing of your doctrine, there it has that objective sense. The next time it's used is in verse 6. But let him ask, and there it's the other sense. It's the faith rest drill sense. Let him ask by means of faith, exercising the faith rest drill, trusting God when you ask him in prayer. And that's clear from the context. It's used two times there. It's used again at the end of chapter 5. Two times in chapter 1, one time in chapter 5. That's three. Three from A little basic arithmetic here. Three from 16 leaves 13. Where do you think those other 13 times are used? They're all used in chapter 2. That's instructive. What do you think then is the purpose of faith of, of chapter 2? It's to teach us something about this word, pistis. But, and here's the important question, how is pistis to be understood in chapter 2? Is it to be understood as the act of trusting in the, in the sense of the faith rest drill, or is it, in the passive sense, the doctrine that is believed? It's in the second sense. It's the doctrine that is believed. And this becomes clear when we look at how it is used in the first verse of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold. And there we have the Greek word echo, which means to have and to hold something. Sometimes it could almost has the nuance of, of belief. But it's do not hold your faith. Well, you're holding something. You're holding content. So that the faith here is not faith rest drill. Do not have your, your faith in God in a certain way, but do not hold your doctrine or almost the sense of apply. Because remember the thrust of this section from 1.21 down through 2.26 is the application of doctrine. Demonstrate yourselves to be appliers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So from 1.22 down through 1.27... The focus is on application. The focus doesn't shift just because we've artificially inserted a chapter division. It's still talking about application. 
So it's do not apply your doctrine in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of favoritism. Now, this becomes the, the topical sentence for the first 13 verses of this chapter. And you cannot separate what James says in verses 1 through 13 from verses 14 through 26. Because when you get into the controversial section of 14 through 26, you realize it is built on the foundation of the argument in 1 through 13. So in 1 through 13, if faith there means doctrine, then when you get down to 14 and you read the question, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has doctrine in his soul, but he has no works, that is, no application. Because faith and works, hearing... I keep running out of ink pen dries. As long as nobody got hurt, I guess we're okay. Hearing cannot be separated from doing, and it's this. And the hearing doing is comparable to faith and works. Hearing and doing in the end of chapter one, faith and works at the end of chapter two. So this is the application of this, the doctrine. So when we come to chapter fourteen or chapter uh, chapter two, verse fourteen, what use is it? What value is it, my brethren? Notice he's talking to believers. If a man says he has doctrine in his soul, that's the nuance of pistis there, but he has no application. Can and then you have in your English. It says, can that faith save him? Just take out your pen and draw a line through the word that. Because it's not in the original. That is put there because it is the interpreter's decision based on faulty exegesis. It is, all you have in the Greek is the definite article and the noun. Can faith, in the nominative case, so that means it's the subject of the verb. Can faith, that is, can doctrine Save him. And that brings us to the third issue we have to study in this chapter, and that is the meaning of the word sozo. Looks like this in the Greek. Sozo is the verb, S O Z O. Soter is the noun, which means savior. Sozo means to deliver. To save, to heal. Soter refers to the Savior. It's the title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we get our word soteriology, which is the doctrines of salvation. What is it, my brethren, if a man says he has, has doctrine in his soul, but he has no application? Can that faith, and we should translate it the root core meaning, can that faith deliver him? And then we have to ask the important question, are we talking about deliverance from eternity in the lake of fire, or are we talking about deliverance from temporal death? And if we go back to the context, we see that saved is used earlier in 121, where it says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, 
by means of humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And we saw that that phrase refers to phase two, salvation. See, sozo, we're trained to think that every time we see the word saved, it means saved from eternity in the lake of fire. But the word sozo is used of all three stages of God's plan. It's used to refer to phase one, salvation from the penalty of sin, which is indeed salvation from eternity in the lake of fire. Phase two talks about salvation from the power of sin. And phase three, which is glorification, is salvation from the presence of sin. Let me show you a passage where that's used in Romans chapter 4. Excuse me, Romans chapter 5, chapter five verse 9. Let me read the verse preceding it. Verse 8, Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. What is that? That is phase one salvation, justification. Having now, present tense, been justified by His blood, we what? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. What is that? That's future tense. That means you can be saved, justified present tense, and salvation in that is a future tense option. So that is phase three, glorification. Back to James 2. That's just to show that salvation is used of different phases of God's plan. So we always have to ask the question, saved from what? Now, in 2.21, it's not salvation justification. In 1.21, it's not salvation justification because we have already seen in verse 18 that we're talking about believers. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. That's regeneration. James is including his readers with him in the idea of, in, in the subject, in the pronoun, He has brought us forth by the word of truth. That's regeneration. And He continually refers to them throughout this epistle as brethren. So He's talking to them as fellow members of the royal family of God. So then, right there we know that the subject of this epistle is not related to entry into eternal life and salvation from the lake of fire, but it has to do with spiritual life doctrines. This is so crucial. We have to build this case very carefully so that we properly interpret this passage. I'm convinced that the first 12 or 13 verses of James 2 are poorly understood and therefore rarely taught, and they're a gold mine of information and doctrine and a tremendous challenge to the life of the believer. But they're not taught because they're not understood correctly. So the meaning of sozo has to do with, here in James, has to do with phase two, how we are saved from the power of sin in our life. Failure to experience this in our life leads to judgment in the sense of divine discipline. So that we have to also analyze the use of the term judgment in this passage. Verse 13 says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, verse 13, 12 and 13 
draw the conclusion for the first part of the chapter. The chapter opens with an illustration about an usher who shows prejudicial favoritism towards a wealthy guy who comes to church, the rich guy, literally gold fingers in the Greek, over the poor man. Now, if this judgment in verse 13 has to do with salvation from eternity in the lake of fire, then you guys who are ushers need to pay attention because if you show a little prejudicial favoritism towards somebody, then you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's how this passage is almost always handled. Because of the mistake of thinking that sozo relates to phase one instead of phase two. And that because they think it relates to phase one, the judgment of 12 and 13 is taken to be eternal judgment, the great white throne judgment, and therefore, the, if you make a mistake in terms of how you seat people in church, you're in danger of the lake of fire. And I just can't accept that on the basis of anything in the Scriptures. So, we'll look, look at the concept of judgment and divine discipline. So, this is going to, if this is not eternal judgment, then the issue is divine discipline in the life of the believer, and that is really going to be a strong exhortation for all of us in this chapter. So, let's review where we are. First of all, we have to understand the purpose of the epistle, James 1, 2 through 4. Secondly, we have to understand the meaning of faith in terms of content or doctrine. Third, we have to understand the meaning of sozo, that here it's used in relation to the spiritual life. Fourth, we have to uh, understand the meaning of judgment here, whether it's talking about eternal judgment at the great white throne judgment or perhaps the judgment seat of Christ or is it talking about divine discipline during phase two, our life in time on planet earth, living the spiritual life. Fifth, we have to look at the illustration that is right in the middle of this, which is drawn from Leviticus 19.8 which is the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the interpretive linchpin of this entire section, is understanding that passage, understanding its original context in Leviticus, and that it was addressed in Leviticus. Its failure to be applied in Leviticus was never, or the failure to to obey it in Leviticus uh, was never penalized by the lake of fire and eternal condemnation but divine discipline on Israel in the land, which means that its application for us is failure to apply it is not eternity in the lake of fire, but failure to apply it is divine discipline in time. That's the analogy. So we'll have to look at that and we'll have to take apart the significance of personal, of impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love because that's the core concept or doctrine in verse 8 but it is preceded in verse 5 by the phrase, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. So we'll see the connection again as we saw back in chapter 1 between personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind. So this is point number 6, and that is the connection between 2.5 and 112. In 2.5, 
the subject is inheritance, but it is inheritance of the kingdom to those who love him. That's not all believers or for, for all believers. And we have to make the connection there to what James says in verse 12, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is talking about rewards for success in the spiritual life. It's not talking about gaining eternal life and avoiding the lake of fire. And finally, we have to understand the the consequences for uh, materialistic, superficial believers. And by analogy, what that is talking about is believers who refuse to have their thinking processes renovated by doctrine. And that brings us to the beginning of James chapter 2, verse 1. The organization of these, we probably won't get through all of this, but we have to understand how this is organized. In James 2, 1, we have a general mandate for the spiritual life. This is followed up in verses 2 or two and 3, by an illustration that is particularly tailored to their situation but has application to us today. Verse 4 explains the issues involved, the doctrines involved, and its application. And verse 5 then explains how it fits within the context of the spiritual life. So let's begin in 2.1. In the English it reads, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Begins in the Greek with the phrase, Adolfoi mu, my brethren. It's from the Adolfoi is from the singular Adolfos, which means brother, and it refers to other members of the royal family of God. Fifteen times this phrase, my brethren, is used by James. In 1-2-1-16-1-19-2-1-2-5-2-14-3-1-3-10-3-12-4-11-5-7-5-9-5-10-5-12. Now he uses that to emphasize that they, he is talking to other believers. And this is so important. If we're going to interpret this correctly, we have to realize he is talking about spiritual life doctrine here. He is referring to my beloved brethren. Almost every time that James says my brethren, he, he follows it with a second person plural imperative, which means he's giving a general mandate for the spiritual life. He used the phrase and a second person plural imperative in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren. The next time he uses it is in verse 16, and he uses the plural imperative again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, there were a number of imperatives in between, but they were singulars. And then again in verse 19, every time he uses the phrase, my beloved brethren, his topic is shifting. He's calling attention to the fact that he's introducing a new subject matter. There's a shift in his argument. In verse 19, he says, Know this, 
It's a command. It's an imperative. It's not to be translated, this you know, like it is in the New American Standard. It says, know this, learn this, my beloved brethren. And then it's used again in, after verse 19. The next time it's used is in 2.1. So obviously we have a subject shift. It's not a major shift. He's still talking about the, his main subject of being not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that's what 22 talks about. Become appliers of the word and not merely hearers who are in self-deception. Hearers are those who just take in the word and accumulate a tremendous amount of gnosis in their souls. Academic knowledge of doctrine does you no good. It has to be applied. That is the whole argument in this section of James. And that's why we took the time last week to study what the Bible says about production righteousness. That the goal is to produce righteousness. It's called the fruit of righteousness in Hebrews chapter 12. Now Paul takes a particular, I mean James takes a particular position here in James 1. And he says, my brethren, do not hold. It's a prohibition, a second person plural imperative plus the negative may, indicating a general prohibition. Do not do this. Do not hold. Do not have. Do not. It's almost the nuance here in terms of the context is application. Do not apply your faith. And we have already seen that the word translated faith here is pistis, and it is used in its uh, passive sense of what is believed, That is Bible doctrine. Do not hold your doctrine with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude. And that in the the New American Standard, it inserts the phrase an attitude of, which is a uh, in the italics. You'll see that it's not in the original. And says, do not uh, do not apply your doctrine and our Lord with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ with personal favoritism. The word in the Greek is prosopalampsias. See if I even have room for all of this on the overhead. Pros, which has to do with face-to-face. Prosopalampsias. P-R-O-S-O P-O-L E M, P S I A I S, and it it's from. This is the preposition meaning to or toward or face to face with, and this palampsius has the idea of of the face of someone. So it has to do with with looking on their outer appearance. That's the the etymology of the word, and it came to refer to the exercise of partiality where you are using, in a negative sense, prejudice, basing decisions upon the outer appearance of someone. That you have, all of us grow up with certain attitudes of, of what we like and what we don't like, and we, we make snap judgments of people based upon how they look, uh, their, their ethnic origins, their culture, their uh, economic position, whatever it may be, and we immediately make certain decisions based upon that, and reach certain conclusions and then treat them in in light of that. Sometimes that's uh, valid and many times it's not valid. Let's look at how this word is used in the New Testament. 
It's only used four times in the New Testament, and three times it's used in reference to the character of God. It's used in Romans uh, Romans 2.11 where it says, There is no partiality with God. It's used again in Ephesians 6.9 and masters relating to, to masters of slaves, but we can draw an application to employers and to bosses, managers, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Then again, in Colossians 3.25, we read, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So God does not exercise partiality at all, and since it is a character quality that is completely antagonistic to God's holiness and righteousness and antithetical to God, therefore we conclude it has absolutely no place in the spiritual life. As part of God's gracious provision for every believer at the moment of salvation, God has given us equal privilege and equal opportunity, and it is not up to other believers to make snap judgments of us based on whatever superficial norms and standards they have in their soul as holdovers from the human viewpoint they had before they were saved. And that's the issue here, is that we all come to the cross with whatever our backgrounds are, with whatever values, whatever norms and standards we have up to that point, and after we're saved, we're not to use those in a negative way in our relationships with people. This is going to culminate now in how, in showing how we are to exercise impersonal love or unconditional love toward all mankind, one of our stress busters. Starting in verse 2, we get an illustration of how this took place in, in this particular assembly. James starts off with a third-class condition. Remember, in Greek, remember that Greek is a much more precise language than English. In English, we have only one way to express a conditional clause. We just say, if, then. If this is true, then this. And if can mean any number of things and has a wide range of nuance. But in Greek, there are four different ways to express a conditional clause. First class condition, if, and it's assumed to be true. It may or may not be true, but it's assumed to be true, sometimes simply for the sake of argument. Second class condition is if, and it is assumed not to be true. Third class condition, if, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. And a fourth class condition, I wish it were true, but it's not. Here we have a third class condition for a purely hypothetical situation. James is going to give an illustration. Perhaps it's one he was familiar with. I think that in this instance, because several times James refers to their attitude towards money, that these particular recipients had a problem with materialism and with money lust. And they didn't understand the right attitudes that one should have towards money and towards material possessions. So he picks this as an illustration to drive the point home. He begins with the uh, exegetical gar, which tells us that he is going to provide an explanation. G-A-R always indicates an explanation of the previous principle. Explanation for if, 
let's have a situation here. A man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. So he walks in, he's got on his Armani suit, and he has on expensive leather shoes, and he has gold rings on every finger. Because literally what this says is Cruso Dactulios. Looks like this, Cruso, which is the word for gold, and then Dactulios. It's one word in the Greek. And this is C-H-R-U-S-O D-A-K-T-U-L-I-O-S. Crusome is the word for gold, and doctulios is fingers. So here comes gold fingers. And this was the custom of the day that if you were wealthy, you showed it off. You had your gold chains around your neck, and you had your gold rings on your fingers, and you dressed in the finest robes that were available. And so into the assembly, and it's very important to take note of the word translated assembly here. James, remember, is probably the first epistle written in the New Testament. So much of the mystery doctrine related to the church had not been revealed yet. Remember this. It will be important later on. James does not use the familiar word ecclesia, which is E-K-K-L- L-E-S-I-A, one L. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, the called out ones, or the church. It's the general word for assembly or church. He doesn't use that. What does he use here in James chapter James chapter 2? He uses the word, looks like this in the Greek, sune, sunagogain, goges in the nominative, sunagogais, S-U-N-A-G-O-G, E S synagogue also which generally means assembly but you see the Jewish nature of the background here this is written very early on in the church age probably could be as early as 40 or 42 AD before maybe even before Paul was saved remember how he James addresses the epistle to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad has a very Jewish flavor to it and to the background. And so a lot of the doctrines related to church government, church offices, anything related to the church as a specific distinct institution has not yet been revealed. So the language is still very Jewish in its nature and relates to the synagogue. So he has this example here. The wealthy man comes into the assembly and he's dressed to the nine. And it is very obvious that he is a man of uh, uh, presence, a man of power, a man of possessions, and a man of prestige. And at the same time, there comes in a beggar off the street, the homeless person. This is the guy that, that he hasn't been able to even go afford a laundromat to wash his clothes. He has only one, ch- one change of clothes, and those are dirty, and he can't go into the laundromat and take his clothes off. And as he's walked through the streets in the ancient world and they've thrown the uh, chamber pots out the, uh, off the balconies, he's been splattered and he is filthy and he stinks and his, he hasn't had a bath and he hasn't had any personal hygiene in some time. And he comes to the door 
to come in to learn some doctrine. And there is an usher. This is the case of the usher who is in, standing in danger of eternal damnation, some might say. And you pay special attention, verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. This is always a temptation to love the people that are attractive and lovely. It's easy to do that. And it's more difficult to love the homeless person who stinketh. He's wearing the fine clothes, and you say to the wealthy man, you sit here in a good place, and then you say to the poor man, you, you, why don't you stay right back over there in the corner, better yet, go up in the balcony back here, where no one will even know you're here. That's the, that's the point of this illustration. And then he draws the conclusion in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges. And the word there is chrysis, from which we get our word critic. Judges with evil motives. Now he's drawing the issue here in terms of the application of impersonal love and unconditional love to all mankind in relationship to taking in the Word of God. And we have a tendency to look on the outside rather than the inside, but the Scripture says that the Lord looks on the outside, I mean looks on the inside, not on the outside like man looks at things. Now, this happens all the time. I know of a case, I call it the case of the hippie and the ex-Klu Klux Klansman. And this happened about 20 years ago, more like about 25 years ago. Both of these individuals are friends of mine. And I wouldn't have given a dime for either one of them 28 years ago, and they probably wouldn't have given you that much for me either. But one guy was a former Ku Klux Klansman. He was straight out of northern Mississippi. And he was so conservative and so redneck, he'd make Attila the Hun look like a bleeding heart liberal. And he had become a believer through some campus organization. And over the course of time, he ended up at a doctrinal church. And he went to work at that church. And he had a position uh, helping out the pastor in many different ways. And, and he was sort of a bodyguard. Now, that may surprise you that a pastor would need a bodyguard, but most major pastors, evangelists in this country, like Billy Graham, Charles Swindoll, John MacArthur, a number of others, have bodyguards. Not in the sense of somebody who walks around with a 45 stuck in the, the small of their back, but because they are constantly being attacked and set up for failure. I remember talking to Josh McDowell one time, about 20 years ago, and he was telling me about how many times when he's out at a college campus somewhere and giving one of his evangelistic and apologetic crusades, he will come back to his hotel room and there's a naked hooker in the bed. He's being set up. And this happens a lot of times with some of these pastors and teachers that are on the national scene that move around a lot. People have set them up as targets. So a lot of pastors have someone who sticks with them and in this particular case, the pastor had received some death threats, so there was always one or two guys nearby who did have a 45 in the small of their back. And that was true with this guy. He was there, and he was ready. And he had um, very little patience for anybody who wasn't white, middle class, hyper-patriotic, and a fanatic for Bible doctrine. Then along came this 
ex-hippie, and he hadn't been ex for long. He had been thrown out of the Navy, Navy for drug use. He had bounced around through various satanic cults and been chased by some, some demonic followers. He had, well, his head was, looked, was, looked like it was the size of a basketball. It was mostly hair, and all you could see was eyes and a nose. And he had become saved and managed to make his way to this church and just kind of bounces into the pastor's office one day just as happy as he could be. Yeah, I, I got some questions I want to ask you about Bible doctrine. Well, our friend the Klansman is just immediately back there against the wall with his hand back in his coat, you know, ready to go for his 45, thinking this guy's got to be out for the pastor. Well, just recently I saw the two of them standing there talking together. The ex-Klu Klux Klansman is now a pastor in Mississippi. The ex-hippie is now a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. I don't know if that's a sign of God's grace or impending judgment. (laughs) He's also one of my best friends. I don't know what that says for me, but I think it says a lot for the grace of God. But if you were to look at the surface of either one of them, when he showed up at that church, he had a, a brown paper sack from Safeway with two clean pair of underwear in there. That's all he had. And he slept out on the, on the lawn in front of the church for several weeks before the pastor called the ex-Klansman in and said, You need to take care of him. That was the last thing he wanted to do was have anything to do with that fuzzy-looking critters sleeping on the front yard of the church. But see, the grace of God does not look at what's on the outside. It looks at what's on the inside. And when we're exercising unconditional love for mankind, that means that when we look at somebody, we're not looking at them because of what's on the inside or outside of them. When we're exercising love, and you make the statement, I love you, when you are focusing on the values and the attractiveness of the object, then that is what's called personal love. Because you have personal knowledge and personal attraction for the individual you're loving. When that individual that you're loving has nothing attractive to you, then the stability of the love is based on your character, your virtue, your values. And that's why it is called impersonal love, because there doesn't even necessitate a personal relationship. The usher here doesn't know either of these men. He is showing favoritism and prejudice in favor of the wealthy because of how he's dressed, because of his position in society. He is showing disdain and disregard for the street person for the beggar because of how he looks and how he smells. He doesn't know anything about either one of them. And what we learn in the situation is a lot about the lack of character and virtue and values of the usher. And this is James' whole point, is that when we operate on the basis of prejudice, based on human viewpoint standards, and the externals of a person, then we are not applying doctrine. And we are in carnality, and we are, we are not keeping ourselves unstained from the world, which is the last phrase in the previous chapter. 
we're still operating on those human viewpoint standards. Remember, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. This usher is an illustration of someone who has not been transformed by the renovation of his thinking, but is still thinking like an unsaved person. He's still making distinctions and judging on the basis of evil, evil motives. And then we come to verse 5. Verse 5 is going to drive home for us the doctrinal point. It starts off in the English, Listen, my beloved brethren. Now that's not how it starts in the Greek. It starts in the Greek with an aorist active imperative of akuo, and it's a second person plural. And what do you think of that? It's a second person plural linked with our phrase, my beloved brethren. And it means, listen, pay attention to this. It's really an idiom because he's writing the letter, so you can't listen to someone writing. But he's saying, pay attention. I'm going to give you some important doctrine here. And this is the doctrinal principle. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. Before we get any further, we need to stop and look at the doctrine of the poor. Because it's too easy for us to slip into superficial attitudes about finances and money and misconstrue what the Bible says about it. The Bible does not say that the love of... that. Um, uh, that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. That is materialism lust and money lust. And this is an illustration of that. So we're going to look at several points related to the doctrine of the poor and what the Bible says about how we're to, to, what we're to think about economic issues. Point number one. Economic status is not an indicator of spirituality. Now, at first glance, when you read this, it looks as if God chose the poor because they were poor and that the wealthy are bad because of their wealth. But that is a misinterpretation of the passage. The presence of material possessions and wealth does not mean a person is less spiritual. On the contrary, some of the most spiritually mature believers in the Old Testament and New Testament were materially well off, if not the wealthiest people in their generation. Abraham was exceedingly wealthy. Job was perhaps the wealthiest man in his generation. David, as king of Israel, was, had phenomenal wealth and material possessions. Daniel, as the prime minister of Babylon, was also very wealthy. Nicodemus was very wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was a uh, wealthy Jew. Barnabas also had many possessions and gave much to the early church. So the fact that you have material possessions and wealth has nothing to do with how spiritual you are or are not. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at a few more things that the Bible says about the poor. Point number two, 
God can raise the poor out of the poverty of their circumstances. God has the ability, because he is omnipotent, to raise the poor out of the poverty of their circumstances. So if you find yourself in impoverished circumstances, God can change that. That doesn't mean that God will change that, but that God can change that. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, and Psalm 113, verse 7. Point number three. There is a special happiness for those who help the poor. Psalm 41, 1 and 2, Proverbs 19, 17, Proverbs 22, 9, and Proverbs 29, 14. There is a special happiness for those who help the poor. Note, it is not a special happiness for the rich who help the poor. It is a special happiness for any who help the poor, including the poor who help those who are even less fortunate than they. A special blessing and happiness for those who help the poor. Psalm 41, 1 and 2, Proverbs 19, 17, 22, 9 and 29, 14. Now, when you give to help anyone, you need to give on the basis of grace orientation. Now, this applies not only to giving to your children, uh, adult children, I might make that caveat, because when you give to your minor children, you can attach some strings. But when you're giving to your adult children, when you're giving to your parents, when you're giving to friends, when you're giving to anyone who is destitute or has need, Grace orientation means that just as God gives to us with no strings attached, you give to the church, you give to the the destitute person, you give with no strings attached. That means when you give them money, you don't come back and say, well, I gave you $100 and you went out and I saw you down here spending that money on something I consider to be frivolous. I'm not going to help you anymore. Because you don't know all the facts. When you give something in grace orientation, that means you give it to someone and however they spend it, however they use it, is now their responsibility and you don't attach strings to it. That's what grace is all about. I was amazed as a pastor the first time I heard somebody make the comment that they had given so much money to a local church and they were going to stick around and make sure they used it correctly. How this local church uses your money is not the issue in your giving. Because you're not giving, ultimately you're not giving to this local church or to a particular missionary, you're giving to the Lord. And those individuals, those organizations are accountable to the Lord. It is between them and the Lord how they exercise fiscal responsibility. It's not your responsibility or my responsibility to say, okay, now I'm going to sit in judgment on you as to how you utilize the finances. My job is to give generously, just as God has given generously and without reproach. We've studied that in James. Just as I, God has given to me generously and without reproach, so I am giving generously and without reproach. That's the principle of giving in the New Testament. So once you give anything, you do not dictate conditions or criticize how it is used. That's what grace orientation is all about. Fourth, the poor are not only delivered by God from poverty, 
but in the reality of their poverty, they often see the need for salvation and respond to the gospel. God uses poverty to put people in a situation to destroy their arrogance and their self-absorption and their self-reliance. They realize they don't have anything, so they have to be dependent upon God, and God uses poverty many times to get people to put their attention back on Him where it should be. But unfortunately, that is not always the case. I don't think there is a class of people more self-absorbed and more arrogant than the poor. They're always talking about money and money problems and what they would do if they had money. They're often bitter, angry, full of hate. They are vindictive. They are mad at those who have money and have things, and they think that they ought to get it without working for it. Just listen to people every now and then, especially when they're interviewed on television. Many people who are impoverished just focus on how poor they are. They want to emphasize the fact that they are victims, and so everybody else needs to take care of them in some way, especially the government. And all they can do is focus on their poverty and how someone else has it better, and they're consumed with jealousy and bitterness and envy. They think that they have a right to have what someone else has worked hard for and accumulated in life, and they judge and criticize the wealthy because they are wealthy. This is the road to ruin and often the attitude which underlies the many impoverished in the welfare system, and it's based on jealousy. We must distinguish in our teaching between charity, which is a biblical concept, which is a personal act or a private act, and socialism, where the government is supposed to take care of everybody. Charity is part of establishment, but socialism has its roots in cosmic thinking. Charity is for the helpless poor, and socialism makes the poor helpless. A couple of passages to think about are Proverbs 14.10-31, through 31, Proverbs 19.17, and Galatians 2.10. Point five, it's possible for the poor to be generous and magnificent in the use of whatever money they have. Paul praised those who gave to the, to the believers in Israel, in, I mean in Jerusalem, when there was a famine. He praised the Corinthians because they gave out of their poverty. They didn't give because they were wealthy. They didn't have a a bunch of believers back in Corinth who, who were exceptionally wealthy. They didn't have much, but they gave out of their poverty to help their more destitute fellow believers in Jerusalem going through the famine. Point number six. This is something on the good side of the poor. The poor are not going to be taken advantage of in terms of friendship. Often those who are wealthy have to be very careful because somebody's going to come along and befriend them and act like their buddy because they can use them and hopefully they will get a little uh, overflow of the largesse from the wealthy person. Point number seven. There's a special curse for those who ignore helping the poor. Isn't that a pleasant thought? A special curse for those who ignore helping the poor in Proverbs 21.13, 22.16, and 28.3. There is also a special curse for those who take advantage of the poor. Proverbs 22.22, 22, and that curse, I mean divine discipline for the believer 
who takes advantage of the poor and ignores the poor. You see, point number eight, until the Lord comes back, there will always be poverty in the human race and it will never be erased. Now, that is not an excuse for some kind of callous attitude towards the poor. Remember, there are two categories of poor. There is the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And the deserving poor are those such as widows and those who have had uh, incredible health problems and other adversities in life that make it impossible for them to work and earn a living and take care of themselves. But what happens in a society like ours that has, has been uh, imbibing the milk of socialism for the last century, what happens when socialism gets a hold of a, of a culture is poverty is increased. The statistics of the number of people below the poverty line since the war on poverty began in the mid-60s has increased, I think it's three or fourfold. The more you increase socialism and government responsibility for taking care of the poor, the more poor you will create. People become corrupted by dependence and irresponsibility, and that corruption spreads and creates a culture of irresponsible, self-absorbed citizens who look to the government to provide their every need. And it is not the role of government to provide the needs of the citizen. It is the role of the government to protect the citizens from criminality and to protect from external enemies. It is not the role of the government to take care of our every, every need. When you have socialism, it creates a demand syndrome and it destroys the work ethic. Point number nine. It is possible to be poor and have incredible happiness at the same time. Mark 12, 43. Because our happiness is based on the eternal values of doctrine, not on our circumstances. Point number The poor are often a target for hypocrisy and are the victims of hypocrisy. We see politicians who are demagogues who use the poor to to emphasize their own compassion only to advance their own prestige and power. And when you base your vote for politicians on what they do to improve your personal conditions, then you are contributing to the collapse of this nation. And you see this so often, and I've seen it in, in, in seniors, where all their lives, up until they go on Social Security, they vote for fiscal responsibility, for low taxes, and for conservative uh, economic policies. And all of a sudden, when they start living on a Social Security check, they start voting for all the liberal economic policies because now it's affecting their pocketbook. That's voting on the basis of a personal agenda, what's good for the one or the few, rather than what's best for the whole. And we have to operate on absolutes and not relative. And when you're voting on the basis of what's good for me and what I'm going to get out of this, and I'm going to vote for this guy because he's going to do something to feather my nest, then you're just contributing to the destruction of a nation. So the poor are often used by politicians just to get their way and they don't really understand or do anything to positively contribute to the situation of the poor. 
And then finally, point 11, poor believers have the same spiritual privileges. They have equal opportunity and equal privilege with wealthy believers. There is to be no distinction between the the poor and the wealthy in the body of Christ. Now with that, we'll conclude our study of verse 5, and we'll come back to look at what that means, God choosing the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him, and continue our study of James 2 in two weeks. Now next week, I will be away in Southern California uh, teaching at uh, a church there for the week. So you can pray for me while I'm away at this particular conference. And then uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have class next Wednesday night or not. Uh, We may have class and finish watching the video on pharaohs and kings. But we haven't decided yet. That announcement will be made, made on Sunday, so stay tuned. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight, to understand how it applies to our lives and how we are to take the doctrine in our soul and apply it to our experience that we may be a visible testimony of your grace to those around us. Father, we pray that we might continue to pursue spiritual maturity and make this a priority in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.